weight gain, increased girth, painful sexual intercourse, frequent urinary tract infections. These are major symptoms, and the male approach was usually, well, yes, they're bothersome, but get over it. You're a woman. And women will no longer accept that kind of avoiding the subject. And what we know now is that estrogen is far and away the most effective treatment for all of those symptoms. It will relieve or eliminate those symptoms in up to 80% of women who take it, and nothing else comes close. That is the voice of Avram Blooming, a medical oncologist and as well as co-writing a book called Oestrogen Matters, a man who's been studying the benefits and risks of breast cancer patients taking HRT for over 25 years. I'm Liz Earle and this is the Liz Earle Wellbeing Show, the podcast helping us all to have a better second half. And as you well know, I'm on a bit of a mission to find ways for all of us to thrive in later life by investing in our health and our well-being today. And of course, the safety of HRT has been a significant part of my research and writing here with my well-being team. I'm continually challenged by the misinformation out there and the very detrimental health effects, the worry, the concern that this is having on just so many midlife women and beyond. And so I'm very, very much looking forward to the chance to speak directly with one of the world's leading experts on the subject. Now, Avram Blooming is a master of the American College of Physicians and a former senior investigator for the National Cancer Institute. We'll talk to the professor about his professional background a little later on. But first, I want to make sure we all really understand what oestrogen is and how it affects everything from our heart to our bone health to our sleep, our mental, emotional and sexual function too. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Avram, I cannot tell you what a pleasure it is to get to talk to you. I feel so privileged and I'm so grateful that you are beaming to us from California to give us some of your time. Thank you. It is my pleasure, Liz. I guess the obvious question really to start everything with, and I know we'll continue to dig into, your book is called Oestrogen Matters. So I guess I have to ask, let's break it down. You know, what is oestrogen and why does it matter? 
Well, uh, estrogen matters was actually suggested by uh, our agent as a pithy title that says, let's consider estrogen. Why should we consider estrogen? Well, uh, women start making significant amounts of estrogen when they reach menarche. Uh, when they reach menopause, usually between 45 and 55, it plummets. It plummets to about 2 to 5% of what it was before, <gasps> unlike Gosh. testosterone, which in men goes down slowly. So it's not quite as symptomatic a transition. In fact, most men aren't aware of a transition at all. Women wow. develop significant symptoms. And because I'm a man, what I was taught, or at least what I picked up, is, well, estrogen symptoms are bothersome. They usually involve hot flushes. They used to be called flashes, but a flash is over in an instant. And a flush usually starts deep inside you, whether it's your chest or your head, spreads out to your face and your skin. You turn red, you start to perspire. It can last for several minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, and we knew about hot flushes and problems sleeping, but most people weren't aware of most of the other symptoms of menopause, brain fog being a major one, palpitations being one that even many current cardiologists aren't aware of, weight gain, increased girth, mm -hmm. loss of sexual desire, painful sexual intercourse, frequent urinary tract infections. Uh, these are major symptoms. And the male approach was usually, well, yes, they're bothersome, but get over it. You're a woman. And uh, they'll oh. pass quickly. Yeah. Well, in point of fact, the median time it takes for these symptoms to pass is 7.4 years. That's oh. an incredibly long period of time. And the symptoms affect approximately 80% of women who are fortunate enough to live long enough to experience the symptoms. And putting them aside is simply no longer acceptable. Women will no longer accept that kind of avoiding the subject. And what we know now is that estrogen is far and away the most effective treatment for all of those symptoms. It will mm. relieve or eliminate those symptoms in up to 80% of women who take it, and nothing else comes close. So that's one reason that estrogen matters. It so does. I, I just want to pick up on something that has really shocked me, actually. And as you know, I've, I've, I've written books on menopause and have been working with so many people over the years. Obviously, you know, our estrogen goes up, as you say, when we start to have our periods and, you know, we, we're, we're full of it as, as women. I did not know that it plummeted to just, what, two two to four percent of what we had originally. I mean, that's almost nothing. It, it's, it's, it's like we go from full of estrogen to virtually nil. I mean, that is staggering. It is staggering. And it's not widely accepted. I mean, it's not widely known. And that's terrible. And that's an actual fact. That's an actual physical fact. Uh, that is a laboratory finding that has been reproducibly published. So why do we lose it then? Is it, you know, it's obviously so life-changing, and we can talk about that, and, and we will talk about that. 
Uh, is it that we just kind of weren't designed to live that long? Uh, you say that with a smile, but that's true. At the turn of the 20th century in 1900, a minority of women survived past age 50. And so it wasn't a big issue. Now the median survival is 80 plus. It's now a major issue. Women will spend approximately at least 30% of their lives in perimenopause and menopause. The, the symptoms, which is what I started with, are very obvious. Uh, it's very interesting that in terms of advertisements that we see here in the States, male, what is euphemistically called erectile dysfunction, gets a lot more airtime than all of these other symptoms that <laughs> women have. And testosterone yes. is widely advertised. Well, that's an incredible imbalance in what we understand is going on. But there's, there's much more than symptoms. Uh, in 1991, in the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine, there were two researchers then working at Harvard, Lee Goldman and Anna Kostasin, who reported that estrogen helps prevent heart disease in about 50% of women. Well, when I hear that and I talk to women about that, what I usually understand is, but if estrogen causes breast cancer, and we'll obviously get to that, breast cancer affects younger women and heart disease affects older women, and I'd rather die old than die young. But in point of fact, heart disease kills more women than breast cancer in every decade of a woman's life starting at age 40. And really? the difference, meaning heart disease kills more and more, increases with every decade. So that in total, heart disease kills seven times as many women as does breast cancer. Even mm. women affected by breast cancer have a much higher rate of dying of heart disease than they have of dying of breast cancer. In addition, hip fracture due to osteoporosis kills close to as many women, let me say that differently, within one year of a hip fracture, the percentage of women and actually the actual number who die as a result of the hip fracture is approximately the same number who die of breast cancer. In the United States, it's about 40,000 per year. And what we hear is, well, if you take calcium and vitamin D and you exercise, you will protect your bone's ability to withstand a stress that can cause hip fracture. And that is not true. If you don't take estrogen and you are a peri or postmenopausal woman, neither calcium, vitamin D, nor exercise will preserve your bone's elasticity and unless you take estrogen, which is far and away the best way of preserving your bones elasticity and integrity, you will have a hip fracture, which is a terrible problem. That is so staggering. I just have to stop you there because this is something that is not being talked about. Why is it if estrogen is so fundamental for bone strength and bone elasticity, which we're talking about here. Why are we not shouting about this? Why is this not part of all osteoporosis protocols 
and education and, and prescribing? I mean, what happens in the States? Is it something that is prescribed and given to women for osteoporosis? Well, the, the answer to your question of why, I'm not sure of, but it is not uncommon for women to be underserved by the medical establishment compared to men. There are many conditions that are unique to women that are often overlooked. One very good example is endometriosis, which is when the lining of the uterus deposits somewhere else in the body, usually within the abdominal cavity, and it can cause pain and bloating. And because it wasn't thought of for many, many, many years, women who came in complaining of that abdominal pain were reassured that they were well, which wasn't true, and were told not to stress out about it. That's that's simply wrong. Well, it's it's gaslighting, isn't it? it it's being told, you know, your your symptoms don't don't matter. That they're not your, you, you know, you you're, you're making it up. It's not as bad as you say it is. Absolutely. the The history of mastectomy for the treatment of breast cancer is a history that medicine is not very proud of, and therefore doesn't talk about. Uh, but breast cancer which was probably the first cancer of which we have any record that goes back 3,000 years, was felt to be incurable. And then in the 19th century, doctors started saying, well, you know, if it starts in the breast, and by the time it was picked up, it was usually large, if we remove the breast, we can maybe cure the cancer. And so that's what was done. And from the late 1800s up to the 1970s, mastectomy was the surgical treatment for primary breast cancer. And when people like Professor Michael Baum, who is not only a friend, but he's also a mentor and a hero to me, said, well, you know, uh, lumpectomy, based on early studies that are being done, seems to have the same cure rate as mastectomy, especially if it is supplemented with radiotherapy to the breast, it was originally ignored. It was ignored for quite a few years until enough studies came out showing that lumpectomy radiotherapy for most newly diagnosed breast cancers is at least as good, it might even be a little better, than mastectomy for the treatment of breast cancer. It took a long while before that caught on. I'm aware that you organised the first study of, of lumpectomy for the treatment of breast cancer in Southern California. I think was that back in 1978. Oh, so that's that, certainly that's... done your homework. And yes, <laughs> yes, I'm 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 one of your stalkers. I have to say, I I, I follow your work closely and and I'm fascinated by it. And I think one of the things I would just like to say here is that you sound like a passionate female healthcare campaigner 
an advocate, which is unusual to hear in this sphere. You, you talk, we've only been talking for a few moments, but you're talking totally about the inequality of healthcare between men and women. You're talking about the access of men for medication or hormones for erectile misfunction, and yet, you know, life-changing medication or hormone replacement for women is is so so deprived and so neglected. Do you think that there is hope? Do you think that this kind of patriarchal bias, this gender bias is changing? What's the landscape like in America at the moment? Oh, I think it's absolutely changing for two reasons. Uh, first of all, women initially were not admitted to medical school because women's place is really in the home, taking care of children and doing all the jobs that men would just assume not do. And now, uh, certainly in the States, women constitute at least 50% of most incoming freshmen classes in medical school. In addition, and I think even more importantly, we are no longer looking at doctors, at absolute arbiters of what we must do. Doctors are appropriate advisors, but not dictators. So that as long as you are informed, if you go to your physician and say, I would like to, I'd like to have a lumpectomy. I would like to take hormone replacement therapy. You don't accept being simply dismissed arbitrarily. Uh, You are demanding a discussion. You know, we spoke about lumpectomy versus mastectomy. Uh, We did this study of lumpectomy in Southern California. One of my patients moved from Southern California to Minnesota and she was seen by the head of oncology at a major medical center where she landed. And the first time he examined her, she got undressed and he looked and saw that having had breast cancer, she still had two breasts. His response was, my God, what have they done to you? And Mm -hmm. she responded to him, don't you read? I, I love that story. Yeah. That she yeah. knew enough not to be intimidated by a very prominent doctor who was simply wrong. And the reason the treatment of primary breast cancer has changed is not because some doctors decided to change it, but because women became educated enough to say, I'm willing to discuss this with you, doctor, but it is my decision. And you have to convince me that you're right, not simply order me to do something. Wow, your your words are so powerful and so well received, I have to say. We will talk more specifically on breast cancer, and you are such an expert there that we certainly don't want to lose that opportunity. Can we just circle back a little bit and cover off the hormones? Because we've talked about the importance of estrogen. It would be a shame to not give it a shout out that it deserves. You talk about it being involved in reproductive health, obviously being involved in bone health and bone elastic. What else is estrogen doing within the female body? Well, uh, there are no prospective, double-blind, randomized studies to confirm this. But the overwhelming data in the literature suggest that estrogen is the only medication that helps prevent cognitive decline or dementia. Wow. That there is, <laughs> there is no other treatment 
that has been found to be effective. Uh, there are stories of drugs that have tried and they don't work. And while I am a strong believer in exercise and reading and living well, it doesn't prevent cognitive decline. And estrogen in numerous observational studies has been found to decrease the risk of cognitive decline by between 25 and 60%, depending upon the study you read. And animal studies confirm that. If you oophorectomize a variety of different animals, you dramatically affect their ability to retain memory. Right. So oophorectomy, removing the ovaries, which is then removing their estrogen factories, if you like. Exactly right. I mean, one of, one of the things we used to do, and we used to do, is when a woman had breast cancer, because we believed that estrogen causes breast cancer, because after all, women have breast cancer 100 times more frequently than men, and the difference must be estrogen. So we thought estrogen caused breast cancer, uh, and that's no longer accepted. Uh, when a woman had treatment for primary breast cancer, we removed her ovaries if she was premenopausal to help prevent the cancer from coming back. And if the cancer came back anyway, one of the things we did is we removed her adrenal glands because the adrenal glands, which make cortisone, also the, the hormones they make can be converted to estrogen in the body. And if that didn't work, we removed the pituitary gland in her brain to help prevent the pituitary gland from stimulating whatever might be left of ovarian or adrenal tissue making hormones. Well, those aggressive surgical approaches didn't have enough good data to warrant continuing them, but there are numerous studies in the literature that look to see if those data could be identified. Well, prostate cancer kills almost as many men in the Western world as breast cancer kills women. And testosterone has a more intimate link with prostate cancer than estrogen does with breast cancer. Liz, do you know how many studies have been done doing orchiectomies, castrating men to help prevent them from having prostate cancer come back? The answer is none. And there never will be. So we can have our ovaries removed to prevent breast cancer, but men can't have their testicles removed to prevent well, prostate cancer. Well, because men are making the decision and, you know, <laughs> stay away from my testicle. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it is quite staggering. Let's talk about testosterone. Obviously, we talked about testicles and that they are the testosterone factories. Is, is that correct for, for guys? Yes. But our ovaries are, are also making testosterone for women too. I mean, it is, a, it is also a female hormone. Is that right? Well, what many people don't realize is that women, uh, especially premenopausal women, have uh, high circulating levels of testosterone. And in fact, the primary pathway to synthesizing estrogen in the body is taking testosterone in the body. And through an enzyme called aromatase, 
the testosterone is converted to estrogen. That's interesting. So we, we hear a lot about aromatase inhibitors. Can you talk to that a little bit? The treatment of breast cancer is still largely guided by the belief, not always confirmed, that estrogen is responsible for the breast cancer. And we can talk about that if we have time, uh, but mm. just in passing, the, the largest study looking at this question, which is called the Women's Health Study, that was a billion-dollar study done in the United States, initially published in July of 2002, after 20 years of follow-up, reports that actually estrogen alone decreases the risk of breast cancer development by 23%, which was statistically significant. Wow. And that decreases the risk of breast cancer. Uh, it also decreases the risk of death from all causes, including the risk of death from breast cancer. But the thought that estrogen still somehow may be playing a role here was responsible for the development of a drug called tamoxifen, which tamoxifen was originally presented as a drug that blocks estrogen's ability to stimulate breast cancer cells. And it was thought that tamoxifen wouldn't work in premenopausal women because its ability to bind to a breast cancer cell is not very strong compared to the ability of estrogen. And so if you have a high concentration of estrogen in the body, it was thought tamoxifen would be ineffective. And so it was used on postmenopausal women primarily. And it was also tried on premenopausal women where it was found to work better than it worked in postmenopausal women, in spite of the fact that a premenopausal woman taking tamoxifen can have a 10 fold increase in her level of circulating estrogen. In spite of that, tamoxifen still works better in premenopausal than postmenopausal women. But Following that theory that estrogen is still bad, it was thought, well, if we use an aromatase inhibitor, a drug that prevents the conversion of testosterone to estrogen in the body, we can help women with measurable breast cancer. And it does help. And by the way, tamoxifen helps too, in spite of the fact that we're not sure how it's working. Uh, the aromatase inhibitor lowers the level of estrogen in a postmenopausal woman, which is already low, to an even lower level. That's why it was and still is used in the treatment of breast cancer, and it can be very effective in the treatment of women who have measurable breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And if you were to say to me, well, wait a minute, you're saying that estrogen doesn't cause breast cancer, and now you're saying that a drug that works primarily by lowering the level of circulating estrogen in the body helps treat breast cancer. Uh, can you resolve that conundrum? Mm -hmm. The answer is I can't. I, I, don't, I still don't understand what cancer is, and so I try to function on two levels, the desirable level, is to be guided by what I understand and what is consistent. But the secondary level is to be guided by what works 
And my first goal is to help women as best I can. And if something works, even if I don't understand it completely, I will use it carefully. So you're implying here that that estrogen is not responsible for causing breast cancer. Is that correct? And if that's the case, what is causing it? What's what's the current thinking? Well, the real answer to that is I don't know. If we had a day-long symposium, we could discuss all the data we have and try to come up with some consensus but I, I don't know what causes breast cancer. I mean, we know the, re- the risk factors are being overweight. And maybe that's to do with fat cells, something being stored in the fat cells. We know that drinking alcohol increases our risk. You know, the, the, these are all risk factors, aren't they? Sure. And there are genetic risk factors that we know of as well. But exactly why it happens, we don't know. I think it's important, however, at this point to say that the current cure rate for newly diagnosed breast cancer is a little better than 90%. Wow, that's so positive. That's so encouraging. So over 90% of women who are diagnosed with breast cancer will be cured. Yes, and I, I use the word cure, which is a very intentional use, which means they will live out their normal lifespan and will die of something unrelated to breast cancer because eventually we all die regardless. But that's a very important point to hold on to, that while breast cancer is terrible and I don't wish it on anybody, and if we know how to avoid it, that is a good thing, uh, it's important that a diagnosis of breast cancer not be equated with death from breast cancer because there is this 90 plus percent curing. Avram, this is so fascinating. And that's a very positive note on which we're going to take a break. But don't go away because we are going to be talking about this in so much more detail, in particular your thoughts about HRT. So please stay with us. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, welcome back. And we ended our first half on a very positive note to do with breast cancer. And I just wanted to bring in a little bit of your personal experience here, because you've obviously got a very profound clinical interest, but there's also a personal, a familial side to this as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Okay, this uh, this lends a certain personal interest to the story, although it's a small part of it, which is uh, in practice for over, for close to 50 years, about 60% of my practice was breast cancer. And while I was in active practice, uh, my wife at age 45 developed breast cancer. And uh, I treated her. She had a lumpectomy and radiotherapy. And I gave her some chemotherapy as well. And the chemotherapy at age 45 induced an iatrogenic menopause, which means she was catapulted into menopause and became very symptomatic. Uh, Symptomatic with the hot flushes, uh, with the night sweats, with palpitations. And she didn't complain about any of that because she doesn't complain. However, my wife is a very, very intelligent, literate human being. And reading is one of her passions. And she found that when she was reading a book after being put into menopause, she couldn't remember what she had read two or three pages back. And that was unacceptable. Terrifying, yeah. And we, we discussed all the options. And I had already been doing research on estrogen's role both in health and in breast cancer. And I helped initiate a study of hormone replacement therapy in women with a history of breast cancer, that being one of the key impulses to do it. Uh, When Mm. women would complain to me about problems they were having with symptoms of menopause, problems that I had caused by giving Mm. them chemotherapy and inducing menopause, I was very polite and I am clearly a feeling human being and didn't want to come across as callous. But the bottom line of what I was saying was, suck it up. You are cured. You had breast cancer and you're better. So deal with the symptoms. And after living with a woman who was going through them, I became much more understanding and sympathetic, women were so grateful just that I was listening and not simply shunting their complaints aside. And so 
I started this study, which went on for 14 years. I published the results every year. And what we found in my one study is that women with a history of successfully treated breast cancer who were put back or put on hormone replacement therapy had no increased risk of recurrence as a result of it. Mine was a small study. There are now 26 studies in the medical literature, five of which were prospective randomized controlled trials. And of the 26, 25 found no increased risk of recurrence. In fact, four found a decreased risk of recurrence and three found decreased risk of death from breast cancer. But the important point is 25 of the 26 found no increased risk of recurrence. And in fact, it was independent of estrogen receptor assay, positivity or negativity. So that this is true, even women... With estrogen receptive diagnosis, that they were included in that study and there was still no increased risk. Right. And we now know that pregnancy after treatment for breast cancer even among women who are ER positive, even among women who carry the BRCA gene for breast cancer and had breast cancer, pregnancy has no negative effect and no increased risk of recurrence. Now, we still have to learn more. We have to collect additional data, but we're not going to do it with a prospective randomized trial. That's simply not going to work. And so I think women have to go into doctors well prepared with information to discuss the pros and cons of this approach if they wish. And doctors have to go into that discussion with information as well. And they have to reach a consensus that they can work together. Talking about data, can we just touch on the devastating effects of the misinterpreted study, the Women's Health Initiative study, that triggered this whole connection and the misinformation around breast cancer and replacing hormones? Right. We, we discussed this extensively in the book, and Carol Tavris, my co-author, who is a brilliant social psychologist and a data guru, compulsive. <laughs> yes, yeah. she. I, I mean, when I She's talk amazing. to Carol, she will catch me and tell me, "No, you can't say that." And she's just wonderful. Uh, we discussed the Women's Health Initiative. Basically, the Women's Health Initiative in July of 2002, came out with their first report, interestingly, as a press release uh, a week before it was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And the reason why that's a problem is what that means is women were alerted to the results by publications like the Sunday Times, the New York Times. The Daily uh, Mail, yep. But yes, mm-hmm. that, well, the Daily Mail, yes even before doctors had read the article and could assess it, which is not a good way to do that. But they did that. And what they said is that hormone replacement therapy, which includes estrogen alone for women who no longer have a uterus, and estrogen plus progesterone, another female hormone, for women who still have the uterus because 
estrogen does increase the risk of uterine cancer. And if a woman is taking progesterone as well as estrogen, that increased risk is, is nullified, it's eliminated. And what they reported is that hormone replacement therapy, including estrogen alone or estrogen plus progesterone, increases the risk of breast cancer, increases the risk of death, increases the risk of dementia, uh, increases the risk of cardiac disease, and increases the risk of stroke. They also reported that it had no effect on quality of life. Well, if you read that report and you know that that is a billion-dollar study, it's the largest medical study ever done, women ran away from hormones in droves. Doctors refused to administer hormones to women who requested them, and the percentage of women, postmenopausal women, taking hormones fell from something like 44% to less than 5%, and it's still around that low figure, although it's a little better at the present time. And, and this is the important sentence, Every one of those negative reports has not only been found to be incorrect, the Women's Health Initiative investigators have publicly walked back every one of those reports with one small exception that they and I have had public disagreements about. What they found is that the median age of women was 63 in that study. Most women who start hormones start hormones around the age of 47 to 51. So these are women who are 12 years post their last menstrual period. And we all have narrowing blood vessels as we get older. Estrogen has the potential to cause clumping of small platelets that circulate in the blood. Platelets uh, help prevent bleeding in our body. But if you have a clump of platelets circulating in the blood and it reaches a narrowed blood vessel, it can block the blood vessel and cause a heart attack or a stroke. And if you start in women who are already more than 10 years post-menopause, uh, that risk can be seen. It's still very small, but mm -hmm. that's a bad risk. Those are bad mm -hmm. risks. Mm -hmm. The cognitive decline that they saw was seen only among women who already had some cognitive decline, not among women who didn't. And when they reevaluated their data, they found that women who started hormones within 10 years of menopause, which has been called a window of opportunity, didn't mm -hmm. have any of those problems, and in fact, had lower incidence of heart disease and cognitive decline and stroke than women who didn't take hormones. And the quality of life issue is an important one because the New York Times published a report in 2003, the year after the initial study was reported, saying, well, not only do hormones cause all these bad things, that's no longer accepted, but it doesn't even improve quality of life. Well, if you read the article, the investigator said, we knew that symptomatic women would know within a week whether they were randomized to take a sugar pill or taking estrogen. And we didn't want women to drop out of the study. 
And so we intentionally dissuaded symptomatic women and, in fact, didn't admit symptomatic women to the study. How can so, you have a randomized controlled trial if you if you are excluding your control group? I mean, that's madness. Well, no, no, no. That they they the control group was the group that didn't get hormones. The test group was the group that did get hormones, but symptoms were not accepted. And so what they found is that those women who did not have symptoms had no improvement in the symptoms they didn't have. They didn't have compared oh my to women goodness. who were, right. What? And that, yeah, Liz, that is staggering that that was allowed to be is, published. It's and, and headlined uh, in the New York Times. Is it any wonder that it caused such chaos? And interesting that it's all, you know, been retracted. But, you know, the damage is out there. It is that like this urban myth. It's so ingrained in culture. Um, among doctors as well as among patients. Yes. And although yes. it's been retracted in the literature... It, it hasn't been retracted in the media. No. Not well, enough. we're working I mean, on it. We're working on it. I know that. That's why we're having this conversation. <laughs> yes, when, yes. when I spoke to one of the Women's Health Initiative investigators, I said to her, why don't you hold another press release? And she said, that's not my job. My job is simply to report the data as I learn it and it's the media's responsibility to publicize it. Yeah, but take some responsibility for how your work is interpreted and, and correct wrongs. Can we just cover off that, that point about age? You say that the median age in the study was 63 and it was a huge study. So presumably there were huge numbers of women involved who were you know, in their 70s, 80s even. Looking at the risk and this window of opportunity, when is the right time to get maximum benefit from replacing hormones? Is there an upper age limit? Is it, I mean, I know many of my listeners will be over the age of, of 60. Is it too late? Are, are there greater health risks the older we are? Uh, the answer is there are increasing health risks, as we've discussed, but it's never too late. That, in fact... The And this is a discussion that women will have to have with their physicians. But what we now know is that the risk of the bad uh, results, things like uh, a stroke or cognitive decline or a heart attack, uh, is not very large. Uh, it, it's actually very small, but that doesn't mean it's nil. And it is worse during the first year of treatment, and it drops off precipitously as a risk in subsequent years of treatment. And let me just stress that this is not a candy pill, uh, that hormones are real medicines. Mm -hmm. And while this discussion is meant to inform women, it's not meant to take the place of an in-depth personalized discussion between a woman and her own physician. Yeah, absolutely. Can we talk a little bit about the role of progesterone? Because absolutely. you mentioned that progesterone is so very important to protect against uterine cancer. And that's why if, if you are on HRT, if you still have your uterus, if you've not had a hysterectomy, it's so important that you take your progesterone alongside that. But what is progesterone and, and what is it doing? We focus a lot on estrogen, but progesterone is, is kind of like the is, is, is the baby sister. Is, is, is that right? It's Progesterone is a drug that helps a woman 
hold on to a pregnancy. Uh, and it goes up to very high levels during early to mid-pregnancy. Uh, progesterone comes, the derivation of the word, comes from that. Uh, in, in my field, what we know is because progesterone helps flush the uterine lining that is stimulated by estrogen out of the uterus, that risk, which is increased in a woman taking estrogen alone, is eliminated. Now, there, there are some people who are using estrogen alone as treatment for, for menopause, and it can help some of the symptoms. I am unaware of any large, respected body that endorses that use that in fact every organization I know specifically states that progesterone should only be used among women who still have a uterus who are being given estrogen. Now having said that, I don't always follow the, the decrees of organizations and so I can't blame other doctors for not doing it, but a doctor must be able to defend doing that, not just, in my opinion, it might be tried. Uh, that is not routine treatment, and I don't recommend it as routine treatment, mm. as so progesterone alone. No. So taking progesterone alongside the oestrogen, but presumably if you've had a hysterectomy, you are not at risk of that. So therefore you can just have the oestrogen on its own. You don't need the exactly. protective element. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah, got it. Is it ever too late to start HRT, you know, if uh, hormone replacement therapy? If you're listening to this and you're thinking, oh, my goodness, this is a light bulb moment. Has it passed me by? You know, am I going to f still feel any benefits? We may not be having any symptoms. They may have long gone. Is there any benefit to replacing oestrogen later in life? Uh, there, There is. The answer to your question is not an absolute answer. There are benefits to estrogen no matter when you start. But as I mentioned, the vascular complications, mm -hmm. uh, heart, brain, are worse if you start more than 10 years after cessation of treatment. And so that has to be done carefully, trying mm -hmm. to assess with your physician as best you can whether you already have compromise of any key blood vessels. Mm, yeah, very, very interesting and, and, and good to monitor and be aware of. And obviously the other risk factors here, we're talking about being overweight, you know, being more than a, a healthy weight, we know is a massive risk, risk factor for coronary heart disease, particularly, and then things like type 2 diabetes. Sure. Do you think that oestrogen should be given perhaps, or will there ever be a time when oestrogen is given prophylactically? to younger women before they have any symptoms, you know, if it's going to be so health protective and all the things we've talked about, osteoporosis and mental health and cognitive function and heart, and heart, heart, heart disease. <laughs> this is the most controversial answer I have given you so far. Okay. The answer wow. is yes. Yes. Really? Uh, yes. There, what is generally accepted now among most informed physicians is that for the treatment of symptoms that we discussed, nothing touches estrogen. And estrogen can certainly be given for a period of time and then cautiously tapered after the symptoms have been well controlled. 
uh, for preventing hip fractures, that is now accepted as well. That estrogen as a preventative is better than anything else. Calcium and vitamin D in a postmenopausal woman doesn't do anything. Uh, estrogen is better than the bisphosphonates that are used to increase bone density because it increases the tensile strength of the bone, the ability of the bone to be stressed and not crack. Uh, and most, most people and most organizations now accept that estrogen is excellent treatment to prevent osteoporosis and osteoporotic hip fracture. As a small uh, additional bit of information for that, when estrogen is stopped in a woman whose bones are fine and who's been taking it for years, that benefit rapidly diminishes. So that within six years of having stopped the hormones, your bones are the way they would have been had you never taken hormones. Really? And so that's a reason to continue estrogen the way you continue thyroid if you were put on a thyroid sure. hormone because of thyroid deficiency. For the treatment of heart, heart disease, I think the data are very good. For the treatment uh, to prevent, uh, treatment meaning to prevent heart disease, to prevent cognitive decline, I think the data are okay. And I think it's reasonable to consider that. Obviously, it has to be individualized to the individual patient. But most current organizations do not accept that. They accept the osteoporosis treatment, but they don't accept that it should be given indefinitely, although the data suggests that if you're going to do it to prevent osteoporosis, you should continue it indefinitely. Indefinitely. That brings me to my last question. And yes. I have to put my hand up here asking for a friend. Uh, should I, we, take our replacement hormones then forever? Is there a yes, no answer? Again, recognizing that this is the opinion of somebody who doesn't know who is asking that question. And mm -hmm. this question must be asked and discussed with a physician who knows you and knows your current status, my current feeling is yes. Avram, it is such a pleasure and a privilege to talk to you. I can't thank you enough for your time. I can't thank you enough for your clarity and your categoric answers. I know this podcast is going to be widely listened to. I hope that it really dramatically increases the conversations, both your side of the pond and ours. And I'd just like to thank you sincerely for being with us today. It has been a delight, Liz. Thank you very much. Wow. Well, what a line to end on and what a fascinating conversation. I know that I am going to have to re-listen to that myself with a pen and paper in hand and jot down just so much. And in fact, just after the recording, Professor Blooming and I were talking and he wanted to make it clear that he and his co-writer, Carol Tavaris, have absolutely no financial affiliation whatsoever with any of the pharmaceutical industries. They don't receive any funding. They have no affiliation. They want to maintain absolute neutrality and impartiality in all things which I have to say is more than can be said for many, many organisations involved in healthcare.
Well, if you want to carry on down this rabbit hole of HRT chat, you can scroll back in your podcast feed to find our World Menopause Day specials from last October. There was an incredibly insightful chat with Dr. Rebecca Lewis about the current state of HRT in the UK, as well as a lovely catch up that I had with the broadcaster, Kirsty Lang, who continued to take HRT when she had breast cancer. Well, as ever, there are plenty more resources that you will also find on LizelleWellbeing.com too. And if you have any thoughts or questions or concerns, want to continue the hormone chat on this or anything else for that matter, do share. You can come and find us on Instagram. We are the team at Lizelle Wellbeing. And for me personally, you'll find me at Lizelle Me. Until the next time we chat, go well. Bye-bye. The Liz Earle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Liz Earle, and is produced by Anushka Tate for Fresh Air Production, with additional production support from Ellie Smith. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer after for years to come try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee plus get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details